coming up on Harvard Chan this week and how the story behind one of public health's greatest success stories. A lot of it was based on not science, but on what I call faith-based medicine. That is, it seemed like a good thing to do, but there was no clear scientific study that showed that it worked. Oral rehydration therapy is credited with preventing tens of millions of deaths from cholera and other diarrheal diseases. In this week's episode, you'll hear from two of the scientists who helped bring this low-tech, inexpensive treatment into worldwide use. Hello and welcome to Harvard Chan This Week in Health. I'm Noah Levitt. It's a simple solution, water, sugar, and salt. But oral rehydration solution, or ORS, which is administered as part of oral rehydration therapy, or ORT, is credited with saving tens of millions of lives from cholera and a range of other diarrheal diseases. To put the impact of ORT in perspective, consider that 500,000 people each year, half of them children, die from diarrhea worldwide. That's a huge number. But the number of deaths from diarrhea has actually fallen by 80% since 1980 because of ORT. 50 years ago, scientists began the first clinical trials to assess the effectiveness of ORT. Those studies helped catapult this low-cost but effective treatment into worldwide usage. A recent event hosted by the Harvard Global Health Institute honored one of those scientists, Richard Cash, a senior lecturer on global health here at the Harvard Chan School. Cash, along with David Nalen, conducted clinical studies with cholera patients in Dhaka, Pakistan, now Dhaka, Bangladesh, in the late 1960s at the Cholera Research Laboratory. Those studies showed that the water-sugar-salt solution was remarkably effective in reversing dehydration. ORT's effectiveness was demonstrated on a much larger scale in 1971 during the India-Pakistan War, when it was successfully used to treat large numbers of refugees. At the time, ORT seemed almost deceptively simple. Before the introduction of ORT, the standard of care was to treat diarrhea with intravenous fluids, which can be expensive, dangerous, and often isn't even available in low-resource settings. But ORT was cost-effective and, importantly, accessible. Healthcare workers could easily train people to make the solution on their own for use on family members simply by using a pinch of salt, a fistful of sugar, and a half liter of water. So how did this simple treatment spread worldwide? In this week's episode, we're sharing a fascinating conversation between Richard Nash, David Nalen, and Stephanie Friedhoff, who's the Assistant Director of Communications at the Harvard Global Health Institute. They spoke about the development of ORT, the process of proving its effectiveness, and the lessons that can be learned from ORT. A key theme you'll hear throughout the conversation, ORT likely wouldn't have happened without working closely with doctors and healthcare workers working on the ground in Bangladesh and elsewhere. David Nalen began the conversation by explaining that the solution itself was really only part of the therapy. A key step was teaching doctors and even parents to recognize the signs of dehydration in children or family members early enough that the solution could be used. So it's not one thing, it's a solution, a method, and a change from the old dietary practices. And, and uh, let me uh, reinforce that, that the, uh, the first step of this, which is we first became involved with, was testing out the solution itself, which was called ORS, Oral Rehydration Solution. That, once that was shown to be effective and could be effectively absorbed, it was added to uh, uh, the dietary uh, strategy, which was already 
uh, in use at the hospital that we were at, at the research center, and then extending it beyond the hospital and the clinic to the community. I would like to point out that although we commonly call it oral rehydration therapy, the ultimate goal is oral maintenance therapy. That is, giving the oral solution to the child, giving the oral solution by its mother, um, in order, uh, at the start of diarrhea, to prevent dehydration and shock and death. Uh, of course, most cases are mild. There, the oral maintenance, before the child is dehydrated, serves to avoid inappropriate and harmful therapies, unnecessary intravenous therapy and unnecessary admissions, and uh, to teach the mother how to mix it and give it so that she knows the next time if her child gets, or another child gets more severe diarrhea, what to do. So oral therapy has benefits, positive benefits and negative benefits. It eliminates a lot of inappropriate therapy and it gives a chance to maintain fluid balance and prevent dehydration. Let's um, take a step back for a moment. Um, I read up a little bit and, and found that the, the idea of putting sugar and salt and water together had been experimented with since the 1940s. Well, th this is a question of translational medicine mythology. Uh, in fact, uh, if you go back to Galen, the old books say he could be the father of oral therapy because he recommended uh, broths, both uh, farinaceous broths, rice broth, which we use today, uh, chicken broth, but they, they leave out certain things. They pick that part and they don't mention that he also, he recommended that along with that, diarrhea patients should be treated with oysters. So we're talking about magical medicine. Uh, there's no method, there's no intake and output. There's no relationship of clinical signs of dehydration to the outcome. So a lot of this is in mythology. I want to emphasize what, what David is saying here, is that, is that uh, a lot of it was based on, not science, but on what I call faith-based medicine. That is, it seemed like a good thing to do, but there was no uh, clear scientific study that showed that it worked, what the correct formula should be, and most importantly, what is the method of giving it? So uh, you, uh, there is a method, there is a, a strategy for giving it, and a lot of these early studies, were they were given small amounts as the person was almost fully recovered. So it wasn't a strategy to uh, maintain hydration or to rehydrate, uh, but rather, uh, it was not based on, on evidence, it was based on, on a, a belief system. So this is a very important point if we think about global health practice. Um, you didn't just took a solution that, you know, maybe had been described before. You also described a protocol, developed a method, and yeah. developed the tools to actually measure if right. this had an yeah. but, but you raise a good point. The, the, the things build on each other, and so then then uh, there are physiologic studies testing out different solutions and different substrates and so on. Because uh, you always stand on the shoulders of those who come before you. And nothing. There's no scientific. Uh, so my question is actually: at the time, um, what were your influences, or you know, how, how and why did you set it up the way you did? Well, at the time when we uh, people had always in the 
part of the world where cholera was prevalent, which was in Bengal, especially, and so on, uh, there was a tremendous shortage of uh, health providers. So they knew that IV therapy worked, but uh, there was one doctor for every 50,000 people. There was no nurses, there was no IV, there were no needles, no tubing. And so it was clear that if you were going to get therapy to where people were, and transport, there was no, you didn't hop on the bus, you came by a country boat. You had to develop something that could be used where the, where the people were. And that meant you had to probably use an oral solution. So that, that drove people to think, how can we get something that we can actually take out there? And there wasn't very much intravenous fluid that we made up our own at the institution that we were at. So there were two objectives there. One, could we save the amount of IV fluid that we actually needed? Could we reduce the amount? And secondly, could we actually get it out to where there was no fluid and maybe even start something earlier? And clearly, it was the oral route that had to be uh, exploited. What and got us to that point was we were embedded in the local milieu where the, very the much population so. was. And that gets back to what I was telling you. No color in DACA. How are we going to do research? So we got a call from the uh, Christian Memorial Hospital in Cox's Bazaar, then 80 miles up Pristine Beach, and now filled with a million Rohingya refugees from Burmese genocide. And we go down to this remote area, and there's this beautiful Christian Memorial Hospital, still functioning after all these years, by the way, serving the local community, and it's empty. They called us for a cholera outbreak and sent it because the local mullahs told the Muslim population, if you go to the Christian hospital, they will brand your forehead with the sign of the pig, haram, forbidden in Islam. They were afraid they, if they got sore benefits there, some of them might convert. <clears throat> so here were patients dying in the villages. Yeah, people knew they were dying that, in the community. Because their families would rather have them die at home than in the Christian hospital. In a way, it reminded me of, at that time, from fresh out of this residency, of the families of uh, terminal cancer patients in the US. Let them die at home rather than in the hospital. It's hopeless, they all die. Their thinking was cholera is invariably fatal, and we don't want to get pig-branded. Let them die in the hut. So we went to see what was going on in these huts, and one of the villages I remember was Turinga, which was built around a uh, paved airstrip relic of World War II of the flying tigers who used it to fly sorties into Japan, into uh, occupied territory occupied by Japan in Burma and back. And they had built the village around this because it was good for threshing rice. And we went inside one of the huts and it was dark and I could see this nine-year-old girl, Amina Khatun, I still remember her name, and her eyes were totally sunken, her pulse was feeble, she could hardly talk, and her father was trying to warm her shriveled fingers with a pot of coals. She was on the verge of death. Well, I was fortunately with uh, one of our colleagues, the late uh, Dr. Zaidel Huck, who spoke Chittagonian dialect, completely different from standard Bengali, and he argued and argued with the father to let us, at least if, he, if we couldn't take her to the hospital, let us give her an IV drip in the hut. And we gave, started, he finally agreed, we gave, reluctantly he agreed, and we gave the IV drip. 
And in a few minutes, her eyes filled up, her voice came back. She began thrashing around and yelling out, Pani, which means water, she was thirsty. And seeing this, he was astonished. And so were the other onlookers. In fact, there were so many people had gathered to see what we were doing at the entrance of the hut that Zeidel Huck had to turn around and not forget this. He said, what are you all looking at? Don't you know this is cholera? And when they heard the cholera word, they ran. <laughs> and that uh, gave us permission to take her to the hospital where she recovered. And after hearing this, the villagers flooded the hospital and we could start our research. I want to go back to uh, what David was suggesting, is that being embedded in the place, seeing what facilities you had, what resources you had, and so on, increasingly educates you as to what you can do and what you can't do. You can't do certain things because you don't have the resources. You don't have, it can't be a doctor uh, induced uh, approach because there are no doctors and so on. So you're constantly looking at ways as to how can we get this down to its basics. It's And, and, and uh, to simplify something is not as easy as complicating. Complicating is easy. But to strip away and say, what do we really need here? Which happened after we demonstrated that it worked and that people would be in, in balance in terms of their electrolytes and water. Then it became a matter of how do we get this so that it can be used in the places that we were, we were talking about. The last step of translation was going from intake and output in a study room where we had to sleep, sleep overnight next to, the patient, next to the patient in case something went wrong, to teaching mothers, making the clinical me that methodology, uh, translating it into sunken eyes, tented skin, more fluid. And well, I should also them. note, though, that oh, David rightly has said that, uh, that teaching mothers and so on, but who do you think was the greatest impediment? It was medical doctors, it was physicians, the MBBSs, who said, this is too simple, we can't do this. And I, as we'll probably get to, uh, and the place where the greatest problem was, was in a place like the United States, where, it's still my God, how much. can you do something so simple when we can stick an IV in? And by the way, putting in an IV and putting up somebody overnight and so on, I don't know, I'm not a, uh, I don't, you're not do the accountant. numbers, I'm not an accountant, but that's thousands of dollars. As opposed to giving something to somebody early on in their illness and having them uh, rehydrate and then maintain, uh, what is the price of that? That's, that's really nothing. So uh, it's been always been disturbing to us is how far we, as this highly advanced medical society, are from uh, uh, from this simple solution. So basically you thought, we have an idea, we think it's going to work, we have this new part of how we're going we to had do it. A, and then we wrote the protocol it. and we carried it out. But there were people that preceded us who saw oral as, as the way, but, but, but the problem was is that for many of them, even though they did, they saw cholera, which is what we were working on as almost too heroic, uh, it was almost too heroic to give that amount of fluid. And so there was, there was interest, uh, physiologic studies had been done, but the, the important thing was to show that it worked clinically. And for that, there had to be a method of delivery. 
which then went from, as I said, the hospital with balanced studies, us sleeping in the, uh, in the study room with our uh, co-investigators, to then going out to a rural treatment center, and then going to the home, and even then trying to adapt it to a local beliefs and so on. Uh, that's, again, why it's so important that it's not just whether something works at the bench or in a uh, highly sophisticated environment. Is can you adapt it? Can you translate it? Can you translate oh, it uh, to the to the situation? The attention. So, so there's there's a lot that has to be done in any new technology of convincing the gatekeepers uh, uh, or others that this is something that's actually good. It's not second class. It's not. Uh, you don't have to get an injection to to do better. You can do it this way. It seems that you've spent a lot of your career trying to build that culture. What, what can we learn from why and how ORT has worked? What should we look for other solutions? Well, I, I think that it's a very interesting and a very important question because um, we know things, now how do we do them? How do we take basic science? Uh, there were some physiology studies done here at Harvard uh, that preceded us. But the link between what, what that meant and how it could be used wasn't there. I think that you, uh, in my experience in, the, in, in this area, is that the translation and the no-do gap are, take work. And they, they don't happen overnight. It doesn't quite work that way. You have to yeah, convince. Uh, you have to convince the gatekeepers, whether they're the doctors and the nurses. In our case, uh, the resistance can come from the community because they've also been told that this isn't the right way to go. That that you. But I, at least my own experience is that if you are willing to put in the time and to convince others, and you have schools like this that uh, uh, where you get to, you know, and proselytize, organizations and international groups, really. whether it's WHO or some of these others. And, but it and takes an army of workers because... It's not, it's not uh, one. And, and oftentimes the people who do the basic science uh, are not always the best people to take it to the next level. That requires a different, sometimes a different set of skills and so on. But we've seen things. Now, that said, it's amazing how some things just haven't been taken up. The cholera cot that I mentioned, the Watton cholera cot. And all the videos on the TV that you see about the Yemen cholera outbreak or the Haiti one, 99% of them have no cholera cot. So, which are the, so what are the patients inexpensive. doing? They're not measuring the out the losses. And, and why is that? If it's so simple and it's been used before and proven before. Because I think that there is a uh, there is a reluctance to go the simple way. That's well, there's a reluctance to take advice from people who are knowledgeable in the area. Each organization has its own hierarchy. I mean, this is it's in the medical literature. It's known from many experts, but still we see these organizations going in there and setting up treatment units, uh, and they're inappropriate, and they're wrong, and they cannot succeed to the extent they would if they had the right equipment and advice. I, I'm very much for giving people the experience of going over and experiencing the situation uh, to see what, in fact, 
can can happen, what in fact can take place. Uh, I wasn't at the, neither one of us were in West Africa for the Ebola outbreak, but uh, anecdotally, people have talked about how people were getting dehydrated and so on. Um, I have not seen any pictures from there where cholera cots were used, though some people said that well, they were. With Ebola, I think we're back in 1830, because we haven't done the basic science. I, and I've written about a, a letter that was published about this in the Journal of Tropical Medicine. No one has, up until now, taken a sample of Ebola diarrhea and found out what's in it. How much salt are they losing? It doesn't seem to, preliminary data, what data's come out, there's no measurement of that salt level, but preliminary blood tests show hyponatremia, low sodium in the blood, not normal or high. So it raises the question, well, maybe they're losing a lot more sodium than in cholera. So, so, so they were importing beds, from, again, from the news stories, from the U.S. celebrity. They could have made these cots for 20 bucks a piece, 30 bucks a piece. I could show you my, and you know, I mean, now why, why not? And, and I think that Sometimes when you don't have, then you create, and oftentimes you create things that are better than if you brought them in, if you imported them, and so on. And there's also been a reluctance, and recently this has changed, but who are you going to take advice from? Doctors from Bangladesh or doctors from the Mass General? Where, well, or doctors from your local pediatric or your department, doctors. which is another thing. Yeah, another. so where are you going to do it? I, I, I'm, I'm not casting aspersions on anyone. I'm just simply saying that there seems to be a reluctance oftentimes to look for um, experience and simplicity and so on. Uh, now, evidently, the cholera hospital where we were has been, now when there's a cholera outbreak, they send for them. But for years and years and years, nobody, nobody did. What is your advice to people entering the field today? Well, I mean, you know, I mean, people are coming in from all different angles, from program management to uh, uh, field research to, I mean, there's, there's so many different things. The biggest, I suppose the thing I tell the students more than anything is get out there and get experience. Don't go in and start planning programs or uh, uh, doing model building, all this stuff. First, get out and see what actually is going on out there. The more experience you can get in the field, uh, the better it'll serve you in the long run. Because otherwise, you're going to be working with other people's ideas and other people say, get out there and see what's actually taking place. Um, I, I just think that that's, uh, it certainly was critical to me to David and so on. Even if you end up not doing global research, which most people won't do, but the the actual being out there, seeing what's happening, collecting data in the field, seeing what the opportunities are and the limitations is very, very important. Now, I can't think of a, of a, a better way to spend some time, whether it's a few months or what have you, uh, but don't don't do global health from Boston, never, never having actually seen the situation. It doesn't make any, 
To me, it makes no sense at all. That was a conversation with Richard Cash and David Nalen about oral rehydration therapy. Thank you for Stephanie Friedhoff for recording and sharing that conversation. If you'd like to learn more about ORT, we'll have some information on our website, hsph.me slash thisweekinhealth. We'll also have a link to video of that event honoring Richard Cash we mentioned at the beginning of the episode. And just to note, this is our last episode of 2018. We'll be back in 2019 with all new episodes. Thank you for listening and Happy New Year.